Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. I'd like to begin this morning by taking you all the way, all the way back to the beginning, back to the very first humans who walked the earth in the Garden of Eden itself. I mean, imagine what it was like for them. I mean, can you imagine the depths of disappointment as Adam and Eve began to experience life outside of the garden. Remember, God had made this perfect place and given it as such a gift to them, a perfect place that was unified, that was whole, that was so, so good. That's, in fact, what God kept saying about it. And the best thing about it was that not just mankind and nature were united, but mankind and his creator were united together in perfect harmony. But gosh, the depths of disappointment they would have began to feel as they found themselves outside of the garden because sin had entered into that garden as they rebelled against their God. When they rebelled and sin entered God's good world, in that very moment, your Bible tells you that a spiritual death took place, a death in their union, a separation took place in their relationship with God. That spiritual death, it took place in an instant. As soon as they rebelled and reached up to take what was God's and God's alone, the right to define right from wrong, good from evil, as soon as they supplanted God in his rightful position to do that and placed themselves there, instantly there's a spiritual death, an end to that relationship, a separation between the two of them. But simultaneously, a tyranny of death would slowly begin to overshadow all of creation like a slow and painful injection of a deadly poison. All of creation would begin now to suffer from decay, from division, and from death. I mean, what was it like for Adam and Eve outside of the garden when they found the first flower that began to wither? What was it like when the first animal turned their direction and snarled at them aggressively? What was it like for them when they felt their first hunger pain? What was it like even when the first labor pain was endured? Fast forward in your mind to long after that labor pain, to a key point in the story where we have to wonder what was it like for Eve when she first spotted their son laying oddly out in a field off in the distance? What was it like for Adam when he first arrived on the scene, perplexed and confused by what he found and saw in his son? 
You see, there was no response when he had called for his son by name from afar. It was a puzzling experience, no doubt, for Adam when he lifted to grab his son by the hand to lift him up, but found that there was no response in the body that laid there. It would be the first time that Adam would look at eyes and have them stare blankly back at him. And then he would have lifted the lifeless body of his son up and onto his shoulder with his arms now draping down his back and he would have began the long walk to their humble simple shelter that they now called home and after he'd lay his son's cold body down again the boy's mother would have arrived she probably was the first to place a hand on his chest and and search for the rhythm that she was accustomed to the rhythm of his breathing and his heart beating but she'd find none She'd be the first in desperation to cry out, to whisper his name in his ear. Abel, my son? My son, wake up. Wake up, Abel, my son, wake up. What was it like for humanity when they first became intimately acquainted with the sorrows that are associated with death? It was a new experience. It would have been a horrendous emotion that Adam and Eve would have been encountering there in that moment when holding the body of their lifeless son for the first time, experiencing the, the harsh reality, the painful reality of death itself. That new depth of sorrow associated with death was what Jesus' own mother Mary was hit with at the cross, something we discussed last week, that intimate moment between the two of them. But that new depth of sorrow associated with death is seemingly something in this moment that God himself is struck with. As a spiritual death takes place seemingly inside the Godhead, a breach in the relational connection between the father and his son as the God-man suffered in our place and as our substitute and now is beginning to suffer also a physical death with it. You see, here we found the sons of men have fastened to the cross the one who fashioned the universe with the hands that they have now pierced. We're midway through this summer series where we're talking about the statements Jesus will make in that position, arms outstretched on a cross. Seven times Jesus will lift his body up to speak, and we've reached the fourth of those statements. You might remember the first was a prayer where he prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The second would be a promise where he'd look at one of the thieves next to him who cried out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he gave to him a promise that today you will be with me in paradise. Then it was a third thing that we looked at last time, and that was a petition where he looked at his mother and said, woman, behold your son. But he looked at his trusted friend and said, son, Behold your mother. And from that day forward, it says that John took Mary even into his own home. But now it's the darkest. It's the most mysterious moment of all on the cross. Where now Jesus is crying out. It was just read to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus has been through an awful lot leading up to the cross, standing before Pilate first thing in the morning at 6 a.m. It would take him three hours to get to the cross, having been beaten and seemingly waiting for the other thieves as well to share that same fate until he's finally found dragging his cross towards the place called Golgotha. And there he'd be hung on the cross, your Bible tells you, at 9 a.m., And then in verse 45 of what we just read, it says that darkness from that sixth hour, the first hour is 6 a.m., the sixth hour is noon, 
beginning at noon, when the sun would usually be at its highest and brightest point, it's dark, a complete blackout has taken place. It's seemingly not an eclipse, but some supernatural, miraculous event where Jesus, in that moment, for three hours it stretches, that time of darkness, Jesus seemingly remains silent during that time. I mean, imagine if you're there, like literally three hours of darkness. It'd be a terrifying scene in midday if that happened, if all of a sudden just the lights went out. I picture people dropping down to the ground and beginning to feel and pad around them to, to try to find their bearings, to try to understand what's happening. We picture fires being lit or something happening so that there's a little bit of light being illuminated, but, but there's something taking place here that was so very intense for all that were present. I mean, think about Jesus and this moment at his birth was supernatural light, a star in the sky, angels appearing at his death, you'd find inexplicable supernatural darkness there to greet him. Creation itself was clothed with the garments of mourning as its creator was suffering on a cross. It's as if the sun itself refused to shine upon the crucifixion of God's perfect gift to the world. It's as if nature itself is protesting man's worst offense, the crucifixion of the God-man. In fact, Isaiah the prophet, that's how he says it. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 3, he says, I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. That statement the prophet makes is speaking of a future, a future judgment that's coming. It's speaking of a future sent one who'd be obedient and who would endure brutal abuse at the hands of men. And that's how it starts by saying, and creation itself will be clothed with blackness and make sackcloth, the garment of mourning, their covering. Again, in, in Isaiah chapter 50, beginning in verse 5, it says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back, picture Jesus, to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Surely the Lord will help me. Heaven and earth in this moment go into mourning when Christ went to the cross. Creation itself groaning with him as the sky darkened. Creation itself seeming to close its eyes and look away as God himself suffered to redeem and to rescue it from evil. And in the darkness of those three hours, Jesus will finally be heard boldly shouting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like when we actually try to picture this as real life, it is a scary scene to imagine. The sky completely black in the middle of the day at noon, a city that's overcrowded because people have traveled from afar to be there for a Passover celebration. In fact, for many of those people, just the night before, you remember, they, like Jesus and his friends, would have celebrated the Passover Seder. They would have had the meal that commemorated the good thing that God did in delivering them out of the hands of their captors in Egypt. And you remember, a part of that meal was remembering what it took for them to be delivered. And so during that meal, just the night before, as they would retell the story of being held captive in Egypt, they would have told the story of Moses arriving and God using Moses to bring about those different plagues 
that would bring about their deliverance. Water that would be turned into blood. Frogs that would emerge from the Red Sea. It's, it's these flies that come. It's livestock that fall from disease. It's boils and hail destroying the crops. It escalates all the way to the eighth one you might remember. It's these locusts who come and eat the crops, destroying them. And then the ninth plague, remember what it was? Darkness. Just the night before, they're remembering Passover. Just the night before, around tables, they are remembering, commemorating. Remember, they celebrated it in commemoration, but also in anticipation that they would once again be delivered. And they remembered a period of darkness for three days. And now on the cross, Jesus, for three hours, is hanging in isolation as creation itself has seemingly turned and looked away. You'd assume it had to have captured their attention, right? You remember what comes after that ninth plague of darkness? The tenth plague was the death of an innocent sacrifice to save the lives of men. A lamb that was perfect and spotless, without blemish, that you take the lamb into your home to be inspected. And then a man would place his hand on that lamb's head, signifying their sin being transferred to that perfect substitute, and then that lamb would be slain, its life would be given. There would be death visiting every household. There was no escaping it except for where an innocent, perfect, spotless substitute's blood was being shed. It was all a picture of Jesus. It was all a foreshadow of this moment. And in the darkness of those three hours, the darkness of humanity's sin would be transferred to and absolved by the light of the world, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And it would cost that lamb his life. See, at the tail end of that third hour of darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in the New Testament, anywhere in the Gospels, that we find Jesus addressing God simply as God rather than as a father. There's a part of this that's striking, that almost feels impersonal, that you feel tension and maybe even distant. In fact, that's what it seems. It seems that he's feeling so distant, so detached, like the personal connection is being lost and severed in this moment. You see, this moment has a way of reminding us of a moment from the beginning of God's story, way back in Eden, where God's looking throughout the beautiful garden, searching for Adam, who's hidden himself purposefully because of his sin. And God is heard saying, where are you? Do you remember? And now Jesus, God in human flesh, stands in for Adam, taking on his sin and shame. And it is Jesus who asks in the midst of this horrific scene, where are you? My God, where are you? Don't let the imagery here be lost on you. God calling out to man in the garden, where are you? While looking from heaven towards the earth, and now God has not only become a man, he's embodying man's kind brokenness, our rebellion, and he is now heard again crying out, where are you? But this time he's looking back heavenward. God is doing for man what we could not do for ourselves so that man and God could be united again like it was in the Garden of Eden. There's a church father from the 4th century known as Cyril of Jerusalem, and he would point out that by calling on his father as simply my God, 
that Christ was taking our place. He's seated in humanity's place and is crying out on our behalf. He'd say it this way, hear these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And know that the Son of God has taken our place and becoming for us the abandonment our sin produces so that we might live confident that the world has been redeemed by the cross. And at the end of that three-hour stretch of time, Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It really is the most mysterious three hours in world history, where creation seemed to look away as the Son of God became sin for us. Some 700 years before this, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, he would say it this way. He said that he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. It's the New Testament that would write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 so beautifully says it. But listen to the power of these words where it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The verse is incomplete, though, because you know that there's an exchange that takes place where he became sin for us, taking my sin. But the verse continues and says, So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's an exchange where in this moment, Jesus takes all that is broken about me and he's paying for it. He's become sin. And in that moment of faith where I give that sin to him, I receive his righteousness. It's an exchange. It's the gospel. It produces a life that's free, that's pardoned. It doesn't produce a list of requirements of what you still have to do to reach and to please God. No, we've been pardoned because of Jesus in this moment. In this moment, the son has become something he had never been before. He's becoming sin for us. And the God has it experiencing something that he has never experienced before. As Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think a part of what we hear in Jesus cry is the shock and the surprise. It's the hurt of his relationship that seemingly is being severed here. Something that he knew was coming, but, but he had no way of really knowing what it would be like to feel overcome by sin, to feel overwhelmed by shame, to feel undone by a new feeling of isolation and suffering. And I know God is omniscient. He knows absolutely everything. But there's something unique about this moment that I don't know that the father and son could have fully prepared for. But they're enduring it, your Bible says, for the joy that was set before them. He endured the cross and despised the shame. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it, it makes a statement. It says, for there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is someone who can stand between two parties who are separated and put a hand on each and bring them back together. Think of the image of Jesus with arms outstretched, elevated in between heaven and earth, having been rejected by creation, rejected by the earth. He's placed above it, but having heaven seemingly not there to greet him. Fractured from a sense of belonging with heaven 
Jesus is totally isolated in this moment. His suffering was far more than physical. It's deeply emotional and it's terrifyingly spiritual. Because during the darkness of those three hours, God placed our sin on Jesus. It was transferred to him in the darkness of that moment. Jesus paid for the sin of the world. Again, Isaiah 53, it says it this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. We thought of him as being smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in order for Jesus to pay the price for for trillions of sins and rebellious moments, committed by billions of people during thousands of years of human history, Jesus would have to bear the full penalty, which meant pain, which meant sorrow, which meant isolation, which meant solitude in this moment. In the darkness of those three hours, my sin and yours was transferred to him. But thankfully, our sin was also paid for by him. But his statement leaves us with a question, doesn't it, that kind of needs to be answered. But then there's also, after we answer that question very quickly, I want to give you three things that I'd like you to consider as we roll into communion. But first, the question we've got to consider is, what did Jesus experience when he cries out saying he's forsaken? Like, what is he really enduring in this moment? If you just start with with a definition for the word forsaken, forsaken by definition means to withdraw your companionship, your protection or support. It means to be abandoned or to be given up on. According to one writer that I was reading this week, they pointed out that the Hebrew term Jesus used here for forsaken is something that would have been used in a nautical realm or a nautical term is used. It's speaking of a derelict ship, an abandoned ship, A ghost ship with no captain, no crew, no cargo, no compass, not having a destination or purpose. But that's how Jesus cries out in this moment. But was Jesus really saying that his suffering was meaningless? Is Jesus actually implying that there's no high or holy purpose in it? I mean, throughout the ages, what are the theories people have had about this moment where Jesus is forsaken? Well, some have said that Jesus was tricked into the cross by the Father. And that him crying out this way is saying just that. He's saying, I've been forsaken. I thought we had a deal. You've left me. You're supposed to get me down. Some accuse the father of cosmic child abuse and homicide in this moment. Where Jesus, the poor victim, is made to suffer by an angry and vengeful father. Others say Jesus was a mere man who was possessed by God. And that God in this moment ditched that man on the cross, leaving only his humanity behind. And so now this man in his humanity is yelling out and saying, you've left me here, crying out to the deity that's departed from him. It's a false teaching from the early church known as Gnosticism. There's lots of confusion, but who could blame them? Because even on the day that it happened, the confusion of the crowd is recorded for us. When it says that they stopped and said, just wait, let's see. Maybe he's crying out for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes to get him. Because the name Elijah, Eli, Eli, is very similar to Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. 
why have you forsaken me? But your Bible is so very clear that Jesus hung in there that he chose to, was willingly to stay on the cross, not having been forced to be there by a vengeful father. Your Bible is clear that he wasn't duped or fooled into getting there and then abandoned in that moment. Your Bible is so very clear that his prayer was to God and not to Elijah in this moment. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this is an angry father desiring to judge and destroy this world. But then there comes Jesus, the compassionate one, to intervene in the moment and get between us and an angry God. Now, this is not a powerful father and a helpless son. The son is fully committed to the same purpose that the father has in mind in this moment. You could think of it this way. The cross displays our triune God partnering together in the work of redemption. In fact, Isaiah 53 verse 10 tells us that it pleased Yahweh to bruise him, that it pleased the Father to pour out wrath on injustice in the world. It also tells you in Revelation chapter 6 verse 16 that Jesus himself, the lamb, that there's wrath with the lamb, that he himself also pours out wrath on sin and and judges injustice in the world. I'm telling you, it's not just the Father who's involved in the agony of this moment. What I'm telling you is that the Father and the Son partner together in mutual determination to pour out wrath and injustice. And in mutual partnership, they suffer together as the recipients of that judgment so that cosmic eternal justice could be carried out once and for all. Which means that if you're asking, what is the Father doing to the Son in this moment? then we're asking the wrong question. Because it's the whole of the Godhead who have chosen the cross, which means that the right question is, what are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit accomplishing together at the cross? There's one commentator, I so appreciated how she said it. She said it this way. She said, it's vital that we understand that the Father did not do this to the Son. The Son and the Father are doing this together. In fact, you might remember Jesus, just the evening before, had said in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 32, he said, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Jesus was confident and clear that although others would abandon him, his Father would remain by him. In fact, think back to even what Jesus had previously said. He said in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus and the Father, they share the same heart and characteristics because they're the same person, the same entity and deity. You see, the cross was the plan of God all along, the plan of the Father and of the Son. Both of their hearts were broken and pierced in this moment. In fact, I think Genesis 22, now now, just think, go back in time in your Bible to the beginning of the book. Genesis 22, I think, gives an interesting foreshadow of this scene and an interesting look even maybe into the interaction between a father and his son. You see, Genesis 22 logs the interaction between Abraham and his son Isaac. And you remember, Abraham is an old man at 100 years old, is promised by God, you're going to have a son. And through that son of promise, he will father many nations. And through that nation, I will bless the whole of the world. He's promising that through Isaac, a nation shall be established. It becomes the nation of Israel. Through that nation of Israel, Messiah would come, Jesus, who would be a gift to all of creation. That was the promise. 
But then the story gets weird and the plot thickens when God says, now I want you to take your son, your only son, up atop the mountain. Hear me, the same mountain we find Jesus on in this moment. Take him up to that mountain. I want you to offer your one and only son to me as a sacrifice. You should know Isaac's not just a little boy in this moment. In fact, the term that's used in Hebrew to explain Isaac as a boy simply means an unwed man. He's probably between the ages of 18 and 30-ish, most commentators will tell you. And Abraham, if he was 100 years old, when, when that promise was given of Isaac being, old, being born, then, then his excuse back then of, hey, I'm too old for this, that excuse still remains true in that moment, maybe 30 years later, where again he would say, I'm too old for this. This old man now walking up the hill with his son probably is unable then to overpower his son, unable probably then even to trick and manipulate his son because Isaac is strong enough to defend himself. I don't picture Abraham coming up behind him, clubbing him in the back of the head, hog tying him, and then finding a way at 130 years old to potentially lift his son up and onto an altar. And Isaac is smart enough to piece things together where he asks, where's the sacrifice? Dad, what are we doing? You're saying we're going to make a sacrifice, but where is it? And his father responded and said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Abraham had confidently told his servant, we will return from this moment. We will return. In fact, Hebrews 11 gives us insight, saying that Abraham had faith that if need be, God would raise his son from the dead so that he would return, so that they would, we would return in that moment. You know, I believe Abraham probably at some point in time had to share his plan and his hope with Isaac, a plan to obey the God who gave the amazing, miraculous gift of his son, a plan to obey him even when it made no sense, and his hope that if need be, God would intervene or raise him from the dead. I think the story of Abraham and Isaac gives a bit of insight into the dialogue and interaction that takes place between the father and the son in this moment where Jesus on that same mountain is being offered as a sacrifice, where the father didn't dupe Jesus or trick or trap him at all. Jesus is a willing participant in what was taking place. He was fully aware of what was going on. But the type in the shadow of Abraham and Isaac provide for us an incomplete picture, as you know. Because as Abraham would lift the knife, God would intervene and stop him. But in the story of Jesus, the Father allowed Jesus, our sacrifice, to taste and experience a brutal death. It fulfilled that type and foreshadow when Abraham had said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Himself as a lamb, as a sacrifice. And there on that same mountain, we find Jesus there giving his life for us. Don't misunderstand Jesus' cry. Oh yes, he felt utterly alone, but please understand the father's heart broke with the sons. I don't know if you've seen the passion of the Christ, but this moment is really powerful where it depicts, as this is playing out, it depicts it very beautifully that as Christ cries out from the cross, a massive drop of water it's an artistic moment that's taking some liberties, but a massive tear falls from heaven and hits the earth, causing a massive earthquake. Depicted it beautifully. You see, we could say it this way. In love, the father gave up his son as he judged the sin of the world. And in love, the son gave up his life as he carried the sin of the world. This is the most mysterious moment 
probably in all of human history. Forsaken in this case means that God the Father forsook Jesus in that God the Father did not come to rescue and deliver his son from the suffering and looming death that he was beginning to taste. This was not a breach in the triune Godhead. This is not the deity of Jesus escaping from his humanity. This is a fracturing of the relationship and unity that existed between the father and his son. It's something that had never happened before. It's something that will never happen again. And it's something that happened because of you. It happened because of me. It happened because of my sin. But it also happened because of the love that he has for me. And it happens so that you and I wouldn't have to be separated and forsaken by God. In this mysterious moment, Jesus is heard crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he say it? Three things very quickly. The first is this. He said it so that we would turn to Psalm 22. Why would he say it? The first thing. So we would turn to Psalm 22. Well, who's the we, Trevor, when you say that we would turn to Psalm 22? Well, the we is all who stood by on that day, but also all who hear his words even here today. You see, there's a game that the ancient rabbis used to play with their followers because so few of them had access to the Old Testament scriptures. So when they had access, their job was to to memorize those scriptures. And a memory game that was played in this ancient culture with the rabbis is that they would speak the beginning of an ancient passage from the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was the job of their followers to recite the remainder of that passage. And here Jesus on a cross, this rabbi is quoting the beginning of Psalm 22 verbatim. In fact, if you want to, you can flip there because we've got time for me to read it to you. Psalm 22, the beginning of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? It's this famous psalm that the book of Acts actually attributes to King David himself. And it was written not just about how David was feeling, but about the suffering that the Savior of the world would endure, the greater than David. The religious leaders who were present there and anyone who knew the scriptures that was there on that day, they would have began to recite this to themselves or maybe even out loud in the darkness of that moment, which gives, Psalm 22 gives an amazing play-by-play of the events that are taking place right then and there. Let's read it together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip. They shake their head saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help me. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax, it's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked is enclosed in me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You've answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor is he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. So crazy that as they would have read and and recited out loud, or even just in the quietness of their own mind and heart, they were reading, reciting for themselves a play-by-play of what was playing out right before them. See, Matthew tells us, that it was dark until 3 p.m. and that just before 3 p.m., just before the lights come back on, Jesus makes this comment while it's still dark, while people are still thinking through this passage, realizing before their eyes what the prophets had foretold is happening. Jesus wasn't just telling them, turn to Psalm 22. Jesus was telling them, I am Psalm 22. This is me. Forsaken in Psalm 22, it doesn't mean allowing him to, or excuse me, forsaken in Psalm 22, as we just read it, you probably noticed that it means allowing Jesus in this moment to continue to suffer rather than to rescue him from his suffering, which is what the Father and the Son chose to do. Again, as verse 24 told you, for he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried out to him, he heard him. He said this so that people's minds would go to Psalm 22. But a second thing very quickly, why did he say it? He said it so that we would be certain. He said it so that we would be certain, not just so that we turn to Psalm 22, but that we would be certain. And who's the we, Trevor? All those who stood by on that day and all those who hear the echo of this still to this day. I mean, think about it must have made people's head spins as they quoted this famous psalm and saw with their very eyes the events that David had written about hundreds of years beforehand are playing out before them. And the crazy thing is that David wrote this nearly a thousand years beforehand. They knew that David had died over 900 years before this, just as we know. Track with me. 
because of the Dead Sea Scroll discovery, that there are ancient handwritten document copies of Psalm 22 that predate Jesus, that date back to before this moment in time. Track with me. It was as if in that moment, God reached down not just to explain what Jesus was doing, our sin being transferred to him as he's being crucified, as Psalm 22 would describe it, but he's also reaching down into creation in that moment to tell us who Jesus was, the promised deliverer and fulfillment of prophecy, so that all who stood by could be certain, just as we can be certain today, that he was who he claimed to be. See, here's the problem. Some people come along today and say, Trevor, that's really great, but come on, no, what if those things, what if Jesus set out to fulfill these things on purpose? Because we know that we have these pre-Jesus copies, these copies that date back to before his arrival of this passage that predict this very moment in such detail. Well, what if Jesus purposefully set out to fulfill the prophecies about his life? Well, how does, well, we could say a how and a why. How does someone choose where they're born? Because there's prophecies of that. The family lineage they're born into, there's prophecies of that. There's even prophecies here about people gambling for his clothes. How do you choose to make that happen? Or another question would be why. Why would anyone choose to say, I will purposefully set out to do my best to fulfill all of these things and make them happen where I die alone, utterly in isolation? There's a why and a how that can't be answered. So the only other option would maybe be that maybe this just happened, Trevor, on accident. Maybe Jesus just accidentally, it could happen, right? Just accidentally fulfilled these prophecies. There's a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner who looked at the mathematic probability of someone just fulfilling eight of the prophecies regarding Jesus' life when there's well over a hundred specific fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament about Jesus that predate his arrival. But if you fulfill just eight of them, the mathematician, Dr. Stoner says, it's the same mathematic probability of one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. He says it's so astronomical, it's the same mathematic probability of paving the great state of Texas in one inch square tiles. And on the back of one of those tiles, placing a little X on the back of it and flipping it upside down so no one can see where and giving a person one guess as to where that tile is anywhere in the state of Texas. That's the same mathematic probability of Jesus just accidentally fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. What I'm telling you is that you can be convinced and certain today, not just that Jesus was who he said he was, but that you can be convinced and certain that your debt was transferred to his account because he was who the prophets foretold that he would be. You see, the seriousness of my sin is on display at the cross, as is the beauty of the love of God. A just God who did not ignore the crime or simply dismiss the debt. Instead, he paid for it with his own hands, his own feet, his own back, his own heartbreaking in this moment. I don't believe that we can fully comprehend what's happening here of my sin being transferred to him, my sin being paid for by him, his relation seemingly momentarily being fractured with his father. However, though we may not fully comprehend it, we must, you must, you must, pause to consider it. It is your responsibility to respond to it. To believe by faith, placing your faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Okay, here's the last thing, and you can close a Bible if you haven't yet. That's why did he say it? Well, he said it so you would turn to Psalm 22. He said it so that you would be certain because of the prophetic nature of Psalm 22. Why did he say it? He said it, please hear me, he said it so we don't have to. 
Why did Jesus in this moment cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said it so that we don't have to. He took the penalty for my sins so that I wouldn't have to pay. He experienced solitude in a way and into a degree that I will never have to. He was forsaken, rejected, shunned, and punished so that I would not have to be. He asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that I could receive the promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. He would experience this so that we wouldn't have to. So that we wouldn't have to be forsaken in life or in eternity to come. It's possible that the only reality more mind-bending than the Trinity is that there was once seemingly a breach of relationship within it for my sake. See, this is not just the most mysterious, though, moment of Jesus' life and of human history. For many of us, we unfortunately feel like this is the one we most identify with of all the statements he'll make from the cross. For many of us, the idea of being forsaken is unfortunately some common ground we feel with Jesus. For many of you, you know what it feels like to be forsaken. You know what it feels like to feel surrounded by pressures and terrors, to feel as though maybe even God himself seems to remain silent. My friends, there's such comfort in my heart knowing that Jesus understands those feelings. Because those feelings are terribly isolating. I think the hardest thing about suffering is that its natural byproduct is isolation, isn't it? You suffer and the world continues to turn. You suffer and life goes on for everybody else. It's so very isolating. I don't know what your suffering looks like today, but I'm confident in this. Because of this moment, I'm confident that there's some comfort in knowing that Jesus understands. To be forsaken or abandoned is what we typically call the ultimate betrayal. And for some of you, it's been a friend or maybe a parent or maybe even a partner. Jesus undoubtedly understands. Some of you, no doubt, have had experiences that left you thinking, maybe even that a part of you died and may never come back again because of the hurt that you've had to shoulder. That wound or some trauma or even a person injured you so deeply that you no longer completely feel like you again. Like a part of you is now gone. And I think Jesus understands a wound that hurts that deeply. When I hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During the darkest and most painful of times, we as followers of Jesus, we can hold tightly to a couple of amazing truths that are found here. First, that Jesus experienced an unimaginable darkness. He knows our fears and our frustrations, our loneliness, our pain. He bore all of that for every hurting person that has ever lived. And he did it because of his great love for us. But the second truth is even more hopeful than it is comforting. And that's that Jesus left the darkness of this moment, yes, to be found in the darkness of a tomb, but he would leave the darkness of a tomb for the glorious light of life again in resurrection. You see, sometimes the journey seems so dark. In fact, it leads you, maybe you feel like, to a cross too, but it doesn't end in darkness. To follow Jesus even into 
death itself means that we can follow him into life again in resurrection. Author Fulton J. Sheen, he wrote in the seven last words, he said, in that moment in which he was forgotten, he purchased for us the grace of never being forgotten by God. He asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that I could receive the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. My friends, you are not alone. You will never be forsaken. And I can say that with such confidence and surety because of the the depths that Jesus would go to to secure that hope for you. You see, we're going to transition to communion right now, and this is what our hope is anchored in. It's anchored in this very thing. This is why we're certain that we will not be forsaken. Because look at what Jesus has done, becoming forsaken for us. Look at what Jesus has done to demonstrate his great love for us, his commitment to us to go all the way to the lowest of depths for us. My friends, you are not alone. You will never be forsaken. Really is my favorite thing about this statement, as much as it's a mystery and drives me crazy, is that he asked this question so that I could hear the promise. He asked the question so that I could hear the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus made that promise echo over each of us today. Jesus, as your people, we want to live with a confidence that you who became the forsaken will never ever leave us. Jesus, when we look to the cross, we find our confidence anchored and rooted there. But Jesus, maybe for some who they're just observing, Jesus, for some, they feel like an outsider looking in. Jesus, I pray today that they'd be captivated by the one who would become forsaken for them. The one who would endure so much, taking on their sin and shame, transferring to them what's right about him, Jesus, about you. Jesus, I pray that you would bring people into a newfound love and appreciation and hope in you. And so if today you came here and you're just an observer, you you haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus, may I plead with you. You have a God who loved you so very much. Look at this portrait. Look at this moment in history where God is displaying the kind of love he has for you, a self-emptying love, where he could give nothing greater or nothing more than he gave in that moment. And he did it to rescue and redeem you. He did it so that you could feel free again. He did it so that he could take you back to the place where it all began, where wrongs are made right, and the world that we want is coming, a place where creation itself is in unity and harmony, where society is in unity and harmony, where God and man are in unity and harmony. It's what we call heaven. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.